I'm gonna pray and we'll get into it. God, we wanna thank you for what you're doing, what you've done. I wanna thank you for even what you're about to do. It's a little scary, Lord, but I think that, I believe that following you should be a little scary. I think because you call us out of our comfort zone, you call us into a place of, of newness, but we can be rest assured that when you call us, you will strengthen us, you will guide us, and you'll be with us. So God, I pray that we, as we leave this place, I pray a, I pray a blessing on the Grange. I pray, pray a blessing on this building. I pray a blessing on, on the leaders of the Grange that have, that have allowed us to stay here and we've had such a great relationship with them. I ask that you would continue to bless them, God, even in our absence, financially, and maybe even bring new members. Lord, maybe even bring another church. As you've birthed this one, Lord, let this be a place churches coming forward from here. And God, as we walk from this place to, to our new home, God, we ask that you would go with us. We're confident that you will. We've seen you open the door. Thank you for giving us the strength and the courage to walk through it. We ask that you would continue, continue to stir in our hearts what being a church is. Continue to stir in our hearts what being a community of faith is all about. Don't ever let us lose sight of our humble beginnings. Give us, give us just enough, Lord, so that we don't have to cheat or steal, but not too much. We forget who is the supplier of everything that we have. So this morning, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right. Oh, the on button. Ta-da. Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. So this is part of the creation story in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God creates. And, and I think if you read chapter one, man, it just, it just keeps getting better and better and better as he goes on. And finally, he creates the man. Well, he creates the woman too. But first he creates the man. He creates people. And he'll realize that the man is not complete without the woman. And eventually she comes along. But God gives the man a command first, not a suggestion. This is a command. He says, listen, Adam, you can eat from every single tree in this garden, except one. And that's, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that one. And God even gives them, God even gives them the reason. He doesn't even give them like, like, you know, I give my kids, you know, they ask why, because I said so. 
It's not even, God is a better father than that. He's going to give him the reason why he should not eat from that tree. Because you are going to die. Not you might get sick. Not you might die. You will certainly die. Now, that's, that's a pretty good reason, I'm thinking. I mean, if, if I'm hearing God speak to me, you do this, you're going to die, I'm good. Oh, but that's not good for Adam. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You certainly, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. This is chapter three. Only takes two chapters for it to go wrong really quick. And so this is the story of the fall. Adam and Eve have disobeyed God. And in here, we also have the introduction of the serpents, evil, the devil. One theologian would say that, that evil, is not the, uh, evil is not the presence of something, but it's actually the absence of something. And it's the absence of the righteousness of God. Now, we can talk about why the devil shows up, how he got there, good. You know, we can, that's, a, that's a discussion for another day. But what we have here is the serpent is going to speak to the woman. And he's going to do his best to kind of lead her down this path of questioning God. And he asks her, did, did God really say you're not supposed to eat from any of the trees? And she says, oh, no, we can, we can eat from all the trees. Well, except, except the one in the middle of the garden. That's the one we can't eat from. In fact, God said, we can't even touch it or we will certainly die. Now, I think here we see the first instance of men, man, people adding to the law of God because God really didn't say you can't touch it. He just said, don't eat from it. Now, I don't know if, if Adam just kind of tried to embellish a little bit on it or maybe Eve embellished a little bit on it. Whatever happens, they've added to it in some way or another. But the serpent, he says, you're not going to die. And he will give Eve the real reason why God doesn't want her and Adam to eat from the tree. And it's because your, your eyes will be open. And you will be like God. And God's not going to like that. I tried that once. He kicked me right out of heaven. That's why I'm here now. And so, God speaks this command to the people. The word of God. And Satan comes along and tries to get them to doubt the word of God. To doubt his intentions ultimately to doubt in God's goodness. I mean, if God wants to keep a woman down, how good can he really be? Why won't he let us eat from this tree? And so Eve, she sees that it's, it, it looks good. It's got some good fruit on it. 
And, and this whole wisdom thing sounds, sounds even better. And so she takes it and she eats it and she gives some to Adam and he eats it. And when they get busted, he blames her. Been going on for centuries, the man blaming the woman. I mean, so, but, but, but then in that moment, their eyes are opened. And they realize they're naked. Adam and Eve, in this one act of disobedience, have lost their innocence and lost that intimate relationship with their creator. Sin has ripped the very fabric of the universe apart. And that intimacy and that innocence is now gone. And the first, I believe the first way you see how it has disappeared is they realize they're naked. I mean, anybody who's grown up and and dealt with young children, there's a point in their lives where young children can be buck naked, running around in front of everybody, and they just don't care. And then as they get a little older, they realize, they begin to lose that, that, that innocence. And they become kind of shamed at their nakedness. And then they get to be adults. Now, believe me, I'm... Grateful you all have clothes on. I mean, I'm not going there with this, but, but there's a loss of innocence in young children. And this, this is the innocence that Adam and Eve had lost, that intimate, innocent relationship that they had with their father. And it all started because they doubted his goodness. They doubted that God had their best intention in mind. They bought into the lie of the enemy, and now it has changed everything. And it's changed everything for us. The word of God was spoken. Satan sowed a seed of doubt. And we had the fall. Now let's fast forward to Matthew. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, People do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him. It is also written. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this story in their gospels. Mark's a little sparse on detail, but Matthew and Luke give the details of this testing of these temptations. And you can really begin to see where Satan wants to go with this. Just in the, in the two statements that he makes to Jesus in the first two temptations, 
If, if you are the Son of God, then do this or do that. But to get the full picture here, we have to go back a couple verses. Oh, did I forget my couple verses? Okay, I have this thing called the Bible. They're in here. Chapter 3, verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus is baptized. He comes out of the water. The Spirit of God falls upon him, enlightens him. It fills him. And then, and then that voice that comes from heaven that says to him and to, I would think people would have heard it maybe, I'm not sure, but this is my son. I love him. And with him, I am well pleased. Could you imagine the encouragement that Jesus must have felt in that moment to hear God call down from heaven. You're my boy. I love you. Well done. But see, Satan is now going to use this amazing experience against Jesus. He's going to try to get Jesus to to question that thought, to question God. What's... Maybe he's trying to instill a thought of what, how do I, what's the appropriate way to behave in my relationship to my father? He's testing him in ways that may make Jesus exploit this relationship that he has to use it to his own advantage. Satan wants to put a strain on God the Father and God the Son. He wants to drive a wedge between them, just like he did in the garden with Adam and Eve just like he did when, when he made Eve question and think and, and, and kind of maybe suggest that maybe God isn't as good as he says he is. Jesus is trying to get, I'm sorry, Satan is trying to get Jesus to go after God so that God will fulfill his own will instead of Jesus fulfilling God's plan and God's will. And see, what you can't miss in this is that the Spirit had led him into the wilderness. All of this is happening. This whole experience is happening under the guidance of the Spirit. So he sets out in the desert. Jesus, 40 days, 40 nights. The Bible loves this number 40. Moses on Sinai, I mean, just 40 is all over the place. And the tempter comes and he says, if you are the son of God, turn these breads into stone." Satan has begun to appeal to the fact that Jesus is, he's kind of hungry. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. Anybody go 40 days without any food ever? Fast 40 days? We, I, I, I mean, like miss breakfast, I'm, I'm feeling it. 40 days, and, and I, love, I love people say, well, you know, after like five or six days, it gets much better. Pfft, right, I don't believe that. I think you just get numb or delirious. I'm not quite sure what one. But, but 40 days and Satan is going to appeal to Jesus in his hunger and pointing out that if, if you are the son of God, if you are who God said you were, I bet you got some really cool powers and you can do some really cool things right now. 
Not to mention that it would be beneath the dignity of the creator of the universe to go hungry. And really, ultimately, it's unnecessary. Jesus does not have to go hungry. He can make food whenever he wanted it. Now, you can see the, I mean, at least I see the comparison of Israel in the wilderness, how they left Egypt and they get out there and they start complaining to Moses. We have no food. Why'd you lead us out? We'd be better. We were sat around pots of stew in Egypt, but now we're out here and we're going hungry. And God's like, all right, I'm going to give them manna from heaven. And it says in the Old Testament, they would pick it up from the ground like stones. And so we have this historical story of God supplying the need for Israel, an entire nation, So why should his son have to go hungry in the wilderness? And Jesus is going to give him an answer. People don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He will bring it right back to God's word. So in the midst of hardship, in the wilderness, hungry, tired, thirsty, it's the, it's the word of God that, will, that Jesus will stand on. It's the word of God that will bring him life. When Israel was in the desert and they were wandering and they came to this place of, of being hungry, it was, it was an educational process for them that God, that, God inst- that God laid out for them. It was God's plan that they would go hungry. And what's interesting is first they experienced the hunger and then they experienced God supplying for their hunger. First they were hungry, then God acted. God acted not on their timetable, not in their convenience, but when God saw that it was time to feed his people, he would feed them. And the lesson that we can get from this is that there are many more things in life that are much more important than just material possessions. And Jesus will succeed where Israel failed. Obedience to God has to be first and foremost in our life, period. It takes precedent over our desires, our will, our own self-gratification, even over the things that we see as being necessary, even as something as necessary as food. Jesus doesn't have to go hungry. He can just think and he can have a five course laying right in front of him. But somehow, some way, he understands that at this time, this is God's will for him. And so, Jesus won, Satan, zero. But he's not done yet, Satan. He he feels the need to continue, and so he brings Jesus to the top of the temple. And he sits him up there, and, and he asks the question again, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. He wants to instill doubt in the mind of Jesus. If you are who God said you are, go ahead, throw yourself down. And then, because he's that good, Satan, he uses the Bible against Jesus. Psalm 91. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. 
They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He wants to test. Satan wants to test the literal truth of the word of God. He wants to test God's promises because this is what would happen. If Jesus threw himself off the temple, God would have to send angels to save him because God cannot go against his word. And so if Jesus jumps, the angels come and they rescue him. The devil is testing Jesus, testing the word of God. Hmm. Luring Jesus again to have God serve him not Jesus serve the Father's will. But Jesus will refute Scripture with Scripture. And Jesus says to him, don't you test God. Mm-mm. Don't you test God. Not that the devil was wrong. He quoted the Bible. But the devil is using it in such a way that it's for his own personal gain and not what it was tended for for the Son of God. Jesus knows that to put God to the test Well, it comes down to this. It's a lack of trust. It's doubting in his goodness. It's doubting that he is competent. He's doubting the Lord is dependable. Put the Lord God to to the test and you have a heart that's filled with doubt. Jesus already trusts 100% completely in the word of God. Jesus already trusts 100% completely in his relationship to the father. Jesus knows that the father loves the son and there's nothing that's gonna separate that. He doesn't have to test God. Jesus too. The devil, nothing. But the devil's not gonna go away easy. And I think he gets to the point of where he really wanted to go in the first place. And he takes him up onto this high mountain and he shows him all of the kingdoms of all of the world and all of their glory and all of their splendor. And he tells Jesus, I will give you all of this. It will be all yours if you worship me. He is offering him to be the king of kings, because in the Jewish tradition, the Messiah, that's what the Messiah is, would be called, the king of kings. Satan is offering Jesus something that he already has. So what's, what's the lure here? I mean, if Jesus is already the king of kings, what's, what's Satan trying to get to? Well, first he's trying to get Jesus to doubt the goodness of God, to doubt, to doubt God's plan. I believe that he's trying to get him to doubt cross that he doesn't have to go to the cross to be the king of kings he can have the power prestige the authority he could be king of all these kingdoms if he would turn his heart from god and worship the enemy What kind of father would make his own son die for those people? I will give them all to you without any suffering. Just worship me. Jesus won't even address the kingdom thing. Again, he'll tell Satan. He'll tell Satan the word of God. He'll say this. Worship the Lord your God. Serve him only. 
And then he tells me, you know what? Get out of here. Leave me alone. And the story says that Satan left him. And angels came and they ministered to him. God fulfilled Psalm 91 in his time and in his way. So Jesus goes through these three times of testing, these three temptations, but he would not give in. He would not be distracted. He would not be pulled away. He would not doubt the word of God. He would not doubt who God is. Today is the first Sunday of Lent. And Lent is that time of reflection. Lent is that time of repentance. Lent is that time of of opening your life and just, just seeing where it is you've wandered away. Asking God, what in my heart has been hardened? Where have I, where have I wandered? How can I, how can I find you and, and be with you more intimately, deepen my relationship with you? I mean, that's really what Lent is. And this is the first Sunday. We, we traveled through Ash Wednesday, and I hope you took that time of fasting, whether it be one meal or the day or whatever, seriously, to seek the Lord while he could be found. And so this morning, we are going to spend some time of reflection on these three testings. We are going to spend some time because I, thank you, E flat. Um, We're going to spend some time in meditation again because this, it's not just me talking to you, man. You have to do the work between you and God. And I'm going to lead you through these temptations, these testings for Jesus. And And I want you to take this seriously again. Do the work that God is calling you to do in your heart. And don't just let it end here, but but take this whole experience out with you every day. Don't forget that this is a time of spiritual house cleaning. A time for us to get back on the path. So again, I'm going to walk to the back of the room because I don't want to be a distraction. And I'm just going to lead us through, and and it's not going to take that long, I promise but this is between you and God. Between you and God. And so we're going to say a, a very quick prayer, and I want you to say it in the, in the quiet of your heart. And it's this. Come, Holy Spirit. Here I am. I am listening. Jesus was tempted to turn rocks into bread. Where in your life have you put your desire and your will before the will of God? I want you to name that thing.
Ask yourself what attracted you to it in the first place. Be honest with yourself before the Lord. What in your life have you put before God? What desire? What thing? And has it really fulfilled you? Now ask the Lord for forgiveness. Ask him to strengthen you. That you would live for his will, no matter how difficult it may be. Jesus was tempted to test God. Where in your life have you doubted God's goodness? Where in your life have you doubted He can handle this? Are you angry with him because he didn't come through like you wanted him to? Be open and honest with him. If you've lost faith, Tell him why. Tell him why you're hurt, why you're frustrated.
Maybe in some way you've tried to get God to serve you. Now ask the Spirit to soften your heart that you may return to the Lord your God and not doubt. Ask Him for Jesus was tempted with worshiping something other than the Lord. What have you allowed in your life to pull you away from devotion to God? Name that thing. Be honest with yourself. Ask the Spirit to show you all the ways you worship it instead of God. Now ask for forgiveness and for the strength to return to the Lord your God and worship Him only.
Now, one last thing. Some of you in this room have been carrying something around for way too long. And it's called guilt. You've been carrying it around because of something that has happened in your past. And for whatever reason, you can't seem to let it go. But right now, I want you to picture that thing. And I want you to name it. You have asked for forgiveness. But you don't believe you've been forgiven. You won't let go of it. And you can't seem to forgive yourself. You have failed to believe the word of God. I want you to look at the screen right now and look at the word of God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let those words sink into that place and begin to wash away that guilt. Let the spirit begin to release you that you can walk free from that. God has already forgiven you. Why are you holding on to something that he has forgotten? And I want you to hear these words that I'm going to speak as they is if they were coming from God God himself. Receive them as the word of God. You are my daughter. You are my son. And I love you. I am so pleased with you. I have forgiven you. Do not believe anything else but my love for you and my word spoken over you. You are my daughter, my son. I love you. And I am well.
So, Father, we give you our hearts. Do that work that only you can do. We open our lives to you. We love you. Help us to know that you love us, not just in our head, but in in our heart. Help us to know what it means to to, to walk in grace, to receive your mercy, that our lives would be lived in the fear of the Lord. And what a healthy spiritual posture that is to take. Father, point out the road for each one of us that's less traveled. Help us travel it and journey on it in all celebration that we are called children of God. Father, I pray over these people now that there is no more guilt. You will release those hearts that have been oppressed by the lies of the enemy, that they cannot be forgiven, that they have to continue to walk in that darkness. God, I pray that your spirit would just alighten on them and they would be released in that stronghold. And Lord, if there's anything else that has chained their spirit down, spirit, release it now. That we would walk with our heads held high and our shoulders back as heirs of the kingdom of God. And we can pray these things and have confidence that you hear us because of Jesus Christ. Amen.